Hi guys, and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Hi everyone, today we are back with another History with Jackson podcast episode, and today we welcome back a friend of the podcast. We welcome back Joshua Proven at Land of History or Adventures in History Land. It's great to have you back on the podcast, Josh. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, pleasure to be back, Jackson. Uh, you know, I, I always say this whenever someone lets me back on their show that you really have to be careful you let in the door. <laughs> but um, yeah, great to be back. It was a lot of fun doing the last one, so I'm very happy that you you reinvited me. Well, I learned a lot from you last time. I've learned a lot from you this time as well, because today we are here to talk about your latest book, which I've very kindly been given a copy of by Helion, is Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira. Not sure if everyone else can see that. The Maratha and Jack campaigns, 1803 to 1806, and the emergence of an Indian army. So firstly, Josh, I want to ask you, how did you get interested in this subject? Um, well, uh, as I, I suppose you could trace it back quite a long way. Um, there was a few things. Uh, to begin with, I, I'd read about the Maratha War in the course of learning about the Duke of Wellington. Um, who I've always sort of admired and wanted to learn more about, and I, I bought a lot of his biographies when I was, when I was a kid because I was I was that cool, and um, <laughs> made me a lot of friends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, I found out later after having read about um, you know his service in India that there were very large misconceptions about warfare in that part of the world that date back to the prejudices and myths um that arose hundreds of years ago and they're still around today people think that because the duke of wellington was involved he must have had a lead role um uh this isn't really the case uh people think that indians are were poor soldiers um which is you know also wrong and pretty insulting um so when my editor at helion andrew bamford suggested that um i could potentially pitch him an idea about a, a book about the British in India. I, my mind immediately went to the Second Maratha War because it seems like an excellent vehicle uh, through which I could try and address some of these misconceptions. And this, uh, this sort of, the idea of the common sort of conception of warfare in India and how the British took it over and things like that was sort of confirmed by talking to some of my friends, uh, like uh, Mani Mugdi Sharma, who is the author of an excellent book about um, the Emperor Akbar the Great, uh, which you should definitely check out if you're interested in Indian history. Um, and uh, the, also, uh, I know I seem to I seem to be plugging other people's books, but my other friend <laughs> Marple Sid, who who has written the 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 books about the Anglo Sikh Wars. Um, uh so yeah I, I felt that there was there was room for me to address some things and um hopefully hopefully that is that is why the book is in your hand right now or you're considering buying it <laughs> that's a great little pitch there i love that yeah <laughs> and and i definitely i definitely agree you've gone you've gone for a good way of addressing these misconceptions because that's what we do as historians we work to address these misconceptions mm. in history and i think you've done a fantastic job of that now you've gone for a very punchy 
catchy title, Josh, I re- and I really like it. Uh, it's Bullock's Grain and Good Madeira. Yeah, wh- why? Why is this the title that you you chose? Um, it it ca- happily it sort of was one of those things that came about or it's, it's sort of organically. Um, originally, it was just called the Second Maratha War Project because it was just uh, something I was working on, and then I gave it a code name which was to basically make take the letters so it became project bggm and that sort of sounds like begum which is a <laughs> word for an indian like lady of good breeding um uh, and so i called it project begum and then it came to actually getting a title for it and helion do excellently sort of um atmospheric titles they allow authors to have some fun with that and it just so happened that I'd been reading the accounts for a while now of, of uh, you know, Major General Arthur Wellesley and some of his junior officers. And there are certain, I, I'd noticed certain trends in those, um, in those accounts. Uh, mostly, and yeah, the most, the most common was that Wellesley uh, was obsessed to an incredible degree uh, about getting grain and food to his army. Uh, and the only way to do that in India is to transport it on bullocks. So the two go together. The army dies if you don't have enough bullocks for, to get the grain. Who And the bullocks are contracted through grain merchants called Brinjaris. And it's a whole thing in the, in the, in the literature of this period that the, everybody has to depend on the bullocks and the grain. And if all the bullocks die, then the army starves. And then... With the junior officers, their priorities are slightly different um, in that whenever they hear they're going on campaign, quite a few of them do try to make sure they have a lot of Shiraz and Madeira um, to take along with them uh, so they can while away the evenings on, on the march. So they have bullocks, grain and good Madeira. Those are three very important things you need if you're going to go on campaign in this part of the world. Or, or on campaign in any part of the world judging by the well, history of warfare so yes quite so you need your transport animals and you need your food and in india this it's specifically bullocks well it is a fantastic title and i i absolutely love it the best part of the book really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why go any further <laughs> it peaks on page one yeah everyone everyone can see what you're about i love it yeah it's on the tin i'm not uh, by the way i'm not actually not contractually allowed to sell my own books because i make stupid jokes like that <laughs> <laughs> andrew bamford's like why is why we let him why we let him out <laughs> well hopefully it's a good bit of uh, information that people want to learn more about now you've touched on a major character a major person within your book and that's that's major general Arthur Wellesley. Oh. Now, who was he and why is he so important in the context of your book, but also in the wider context of this war? Right. Well, Arthur Wellesley is better known to us as uh, the first Duke of Wellington. Uh, but in 1803, he was actually just one of the younger brothers of the Governor General uh, in uh, Bengal. Uh, who was uh, Richard Wellesley, who we will refer to from here on as Lord Wellesley, uh, rather than 
having to think of a different name for him or calling him by his first name, which is kind of kind of weird when everybody else is referred to by their last names. Um, so there's General Wellesley and there's um, and there's Lord Wellesley, and there are two different people. There's actually other Wellesleys in India at the second. There were actually several of the brothers all out there working together. Um, but Arthur, Arthur, aka General Wellesley, um, he wasn't anybody massively of note at the time, but because he was the Governor General's brother, uh, he was able to be given a great amount of jobs in the government because he could be trusted. And this allowed him to shine in a military and organizational capacity. Um, he was probably seen at the time as a fairly capable logistical brain, quite handy to have on campaign. Um, but I think that if he had, say, been killed in India, people would really not have taken a great deal of notice of him, except he was quite, an, quite, a, quite a capable officer. Uh, why is he important to the Maratha War? Is, is because he was made um, governor of Seringapatam in 1799 after the fall of uh, Tipu Sultan and the, the short-lived uh, Muslim rulers of Mysore. And he had done some campaigns to fight rebels and bandits and had sort of been anticipating at some point a war with the Marathas. And so when a war did arise, um, he was in the forefront of certainly Richard, uh, Lord Wellesley's uh, mind when it came to selecting commanders for the different armies and indeed for several other uh, of the of the leaders of the uh, the different the three presidencies in India at the time, Bengal, Madras and Bombay. Uh, so he and he was given command of the army or of the I should say the advanced portion of the army that was originally sent into um, to to address the the issues that Lord Wellesley had had involved himself in in the in the Maratha territory, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay, and that's that's really fascinating that he's come to this period and come into power through relations which is not uncommon but he's managed to use that to his advantage and become such an important and powerful player throughout this period yeah now, yeah but it, it, you, you, you know it's all about connections in, in the british army in those days so and to be honest still today if you if you have the connections by all means use them until you get ahead so that's that's why he's here really yeah <laughs> and Hats off to him for using that to his advantage. So full full credits to Major General Arthur there. Now, for those who don't know, India is a long way away from Great Britain. Now, obviously, being a long way away from Britain, how does this army, this British army in India, use the native population within their campaign? Well, that's a good question, um, uh, because yes, indeed, it is a very long way away, and it obviously opens up the can of worms that is, um, what the hell are the British doing in India? But um, 
we can't cover that because that's a whole different podcast and quite frankly way over my head but um they had been involving the population of india in the defense well this is the british i should say in the defense of their interest commercial interests and territories uh since the very beginning the east india company um was uh you see obviously you know it was a private commercial venture uh, and unable to depend on the british government um as a right i should say they they got they got the support of the british government because the british government were invested in the company essentially and so they could count on support of of the home government but the east india company itself at first couldn't really couldn't sustain itself in india without having some sort of protection force to guard its warehouses its you know port setups its ships and its settlements as it as it grew so the easiest way to do this was to hire on local local mercenaries basically uh, and at first of course um that didn't go much beyond a few watchmen and when they started to get the authority to collect taxes and govern territories which was given to them by the Mughals um during the conquest of Bengal the they needed to sort of enlarge the establishment and by the time of the second maratha war the company was running a military uh force that rivaled the wartime capacity of a modest european power and uh i mean for a start that was just sort of stupefying to a lot of people in britain who just some some of them couldn't get their heads around that the, the you know the east india company had an army the size of the british army um but yeah the the um and the way they integrated indians into the east india company army and i think we do need to make a distinction here about the two phases of british sort of control in south asia and that is the the company raj and the british raj they're two different things um and we're talking about the company raj with this one and so they the way they did this was to create an armed force that protected each of the three presidencies that was formed by both european and native soldiers and by far um the native soldiers outnumbered the europeans and that's a that's an interesting way that they've been able to incorporate these um native people into this army for the for their own good but also to protect regions of india were were there different types of ranks between these different types of soldiers or were they all kind of on the same rank and the same level and the same power within the structure well um the east india company uh tried to organize its uh its army along the lines of the the british home army um except like i said before that had to be tailored a little because there wasn't a lot of europeans in india um so it worked pretty much like this they they had their own separate army and the british army in europe would send troops out to help them now the east india company army 
had therefore its own its own structure and that looked a little like this so you had european battalions there was never very many of them each presidency had a bengal had like it had a european regiment so they were called the for instance the bengal europeans and then you had rather a lot more native battalions of horse and foot and the artillery was always handled by Europeans in this period because they didn't like the idea of giving um, Indians artillery, even though all the native powers had artillery. But it's um, whatever. Uh, the, and these regiments were organized uh, in, in a, in a um, somewhat segmented way. The Europeans were just organized like British battalions with colonels, majors, um lieutenants captains you know all those and privates and sergeants and all that sort of thing and they and interestingly as well you can tell that the the, the east india company's army and the british army king's army is different because the commissions the officers hold um are different a king's officer has it from the crown of great britain so from king george or his regent and the East India companies are from the East India Company. So that's where you, you can see that they're, they're completely different, really. Now, the native regiments are the most interesting in terms of their organization, because obviously you have a small core of British officers or European officers, uh, technically in command of them. So you have a colonel, a major, um, a couple of captains, and a few lieutenants and things like that. Um, and these guys are supposed to be the ones who are in charge and making the big decisions. However, the day-to-day -day stuff, and essentially the, the entire running of the regiments are down to the native officers. And these are um, subadars uh, and the... Uh, various uh, it, the, the the names change between the cavalry and the infantry but you get the you get uh, sepoys as privates uh, I believe um, havildars are sergeants and subadars and jemadars are also in there as well but the most important officer in the in the native army is in the native battalions are the subadars and the subadar majors who command the companies and who are the direct link through from the European offices. And so in terms of you mentioned ranks and stuff, um, these native ranks are properly offices, but they're sort of treated like sergeants in a sort of way by the European offices because they, that's just all sort, of, sort of how they see them. And like I say, the, the names change if you're in the cavalry, because then you have uh, Rissaldars uh, instead of Subadars and etc. cetera. Uh, it's quite complicated, but it, it works pretty well. And it is developing into a very professional fighting force by the time of the Maratha War. Uh, that, was, that was something that I was really fascinated by in the book. And I just wanted to learn more about because it's so interesting watching those power dynamics play out, not just on a political level within India, but also structurally within, mm. within the armies. 
and I thought I yeah, thought that I mean, was. A... It is. It is definitely, and it's interesting as well how um, how they how they chose the officers of the Indian of the Indian regiments. So, for, so for instance, I mentioned in the book a a chap called I believe his name is I think his Subadar named Khan, and he is killed. Spoiler alert! In the assault on uh, Ahmad Nagar, and he actually became good friends with one of the British officers, and they used to play chess in the evenings. It's actually quite an interesting dynamic there that you don't often touch upon. It was quite unusual at the time, um, but he was given. He wasn't terribly well liked in the regiment because he was basically given his position as a subadar um, because he had brought in a lot of his family's retainers because he came from a good family. And so he brought in a lot of recruits and therefore was given an important position in the regiment. And so there's all sorts of, the, there's lots of different power, power dynamics and political sort of things going on, even at battalion level with the appointment of officers and things. So yes, it's very interesting the, the way the, the company armies worked. And that little bit of human side that you mentioned within your book that you just touched on was, also another thing that just really shows that this is something more human there's uh there's different levels to it it's not just separate entities operating within one larger mm. idea now they're fighting the marathas in india firstly why are they are they fighting them and secondly who are the marathas Yes, well, okay. Um, I'll start with 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 who are the Marathas. Um, so we'll, we'll flip that upside down. <laughs> um, I, it, it, Probably it, a better it, way to answer that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to my mind, it's slightly easier to answer the first one than the second one. But um, uh, the Marathas were a powerful confederation of about five. Hindu Maratha speaking kingdoms uh, that arose as um, out of the families of well-paid mounted mercenaries in the armies of 17th century um, Ahmadnagar and uh, Bijapur in Western Central India. Now, uh, the great founder of the Maratha state, the Chaturapati Shivaji Bonsle, um, established here this this polity as you as some call it uh, some call it an empire um outright some yeah some people call it the maratha empire not just the maratha confederacy and there's some debate as to what is the proper term i generally call it the confederacy because it's sort of fractured but uh, anyway uh shivaji uh, made many of his most trusted generals Rajas who came to form the main parts of the Confederacy that we talk about in the book. And um, the, it, it grew over time and played an important role in the downfall of the Mughals. And, the, and it came to dominate most of Western India from the, from the Western Ghats up to Malva, and across the Deccan Plateau to the east coast, and as far up to Hindustan as into Hindustan as uh, the, the Himalayan barrier. Uh, so a, a vast swathe of territory uh, belonged or was claimed by the Marathas. They claimed this territory generally because they were excellent um, 
in what you might basically well bluntly call a protection racket because they were they they commanded hordes of predatory cavalry that could lay waste to anything that they so chose to lay waste to if you didn't pay a tribute to them um and that was that was sort of how they got the ball rolling and they became more structured as time went on and but that's still the the uh the eliciting of what they called the chucked um or the the tribute was still a big part of Maratha politics and so uh, and so obviously if you're an ally then they were good friends to you um if you didn't pay up then you could expect to see your lands burned and laid waste by their by their by their cavalrymen and this sort of establishment was of a, of what could have been a proper Maratha empire, I feel, was given a hard check uh, in the 1760s when the when the Marathas were defeated at, pa at the Third Battle of Panipat, which is an incredibly important battle in Indian history, um, uh, when the Afghans uh, under Shah Shah Abdali uh, came down and uh took Delhi basically. Uh now Delhi is very important to understanding the Marathas place in India. Delhi is where the seat of the Mughal emperors are or is or was and because of the downfall of the the Mughal empire um and the but the but the, the, the existence of the emperor still on the throne in Delhi meant that whoever controlled Delhi and therefore controlled the emperor could essentially rule in his name. Even the East India Company derived a lot of their power in Bengal because they had been appointed by the Mughal emperor um, uh, to be tax collectors essentially in Bengal for, for him in quotes. And so the, the Marathas had had controlled Delhi up to this point and indeed they 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 captured it again and again made themselves the guardians of the of the old emperor um, this was done because in the aftermath of this great defeat you get some extraordinary people coming to the fore especially the likes of Mahadaji Shinde um, who is the Maharaja of Gwalior and he was the driving force in Maratha politics through the second half of the 18th century. Uh, he was a brilliant man who managed to keep the Marathas sort of out of the orbit of the British and re-establish it as a, as, a, as a great power in India and, uh, and re-established Maratha power over Delhi. Now, this all falls apart. <laughs> Um, in the late 18th century, because all the great generation of Maratha leaders like Mahadaji and Tukaji Holkar uh, and people like that um, died. Now, the other thing about the Maratha em the Empire slash Confederacy is that it was no longer ruled by the line of Shivaji Bonsle. Who had, who I said before, founded, founded the state. It was run by 
a line of people, a, a family essentially, that were descended from his uh, his his prime ministers, uh, and these were called the Peshwas, and they ruled in Pune in Western India. Now, by the time Mahadaji died, um, the Peshwas were as were as obsolete as the old Maratha Chhatrapatis, the old Maratha emperors. Uh, they were as obsolete almost as the Mughal emperor in Delhi. It was a figurehead. He was ruled by his own advisors and by powerful Maratha lords like the Shindes in, in Gwalior. And it just so happened that, you know, you had this sort of, you had a period of time when, when too many of them died and they were all quite young successes and they came under various guardians. And the one you get left with by 1800 is a guy called uh, Bajirao II. Now, this guy, <laughs> this guy, uh, how do you describe Bajirao II? Well, he's an idiot, basically. Um, he's too young, he doesn't have good advisors, he, he's burning for revenge against a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Um, he's personally involved in a lot of stuff that he's just in and over his head and he's just the wrong guy at the wrong time. And there's no rudder for the Marathas anymore because also, like I say, Mahdaji Shinde has died. His, I believe one of his nephews or one of his adopted sons, I forget slightly which one, um, uh, Dalatrao Shinde, uh, uh, is is in charge in Gwalior, and there's this whole mad purging of the Holkar family, who are the Maharajas of Indore, um, and a civil war breaks out basically uh, in in 1800, 1800, 1802 because unfortunately, in in their eagerness to destroy the Holkar family, they don't kill. The one they needed to kill, and that is a guy called Yashwan Trao Holka, and he escapes, and he raises an army, and we'll get to him a little later specifically. But there's a civil war breaks out between these principal figures, and the the faction of allies composed of uh, of of Bajirao II and, and Dalatrao Sindhya or Shinde. I'm saying shit, I should, I should, I wanted to clarify here as well as I ramble on endlessly about this because it is, it's it actually, all of this could be its own book in itself. It's fascinating stuff and very, very sort of layered and there's tons of stuff you can go into politically and militarily, but. Um, there's it's also incredibly five... relevant in terms of the book yes, as well. Yes, it is. So... It is absolutely. I actually had to cut tons of it because it had to fit it into uh, the, the size of the book it is, which was very sad. But um, the, there's about five ways, five or six ways of saying the name of the family of the Maharajas of Gwalior. Um, commonly in British vernacular, we say Sindhya. However, if you sort of watch Indian cinema, then you'll hear it given as Shinde. And I put it as Sindhya in the book, 
but often I will just sort of interchangeably use any name that comes into my head. So I do apologize if anybody gets massively confused. Sindia and Shinde are the same person if I, if, <laughs> if I go on some tangent and forget. Anyway, he and Bajira are defeated outside of, of Pune uh, by Holka. Bajirao runs to the British and it is just the most ridiculous irony because his father had done the same thing, which had literally the same thing. He had been ousted from Pune and he ran to the British and this started the first Maratha war, which actually had gone quite well for the Marathas, I might add, that actually pretty much defeated the British and forced them to, um, forced them to sign a treaty to leave them alone. But that was in the days when there were great men in the Maratha kingdom leading sensibly. And now you just had a bunch of kids who didn't really know what was going on and thought, well, just sort of going, making it up as they went along. Uh, and Bajira II was exactly this. He ran to the British and he signed a treaty with, 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 um, with Lord Wellesley, which said, but if you restore me to my throne, what is my masnud, as it was called, then I will allow you to, to incorporate the Maratha Confederacy into what the British call the subsidiary system, which is where basically you become a protectorate of the East India Company. Uh, that is essentially how you get the Second Maratha War, because both Shinde and Holkar said that wasn't part of the plan. Shinde said, I'm not signing anything that you have signed because you ran away to the British. And so that is, that's, that's the setup. The British now are obliged to march into the Maratha territory and replace Bajirao on the throne of Pune, little knowing that nobody wants that to happen. I'm sure, I'm sure that they didn't entirely mind walking into there anyway so <laughs> no no i don't think it was a great stretch <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting how history is yet again demonstrating that it is cyclical by a father and son doing exactly the same thing to start two very similar wars mm -hmm. now in this war and you've already touched on it very slightly is a part where britain goes into the Deccan campaign. Now, what, was, what was this part of the war? And, and what was the aim of this particular campaign? Well, the, the Deccan is a geographical expression for a large part of India. And it, in English, is translated as South. Now, what that means is that it is South of Hindustan and, uh, and Rajasthan. And it is... Yeah, it's like an old, I guess it's an old Mughal expression, pretty much, that south of here is the Deccan. And it's a, it's a vast sort of upland plateau that's separated into three sort of geographic zones. You have a wet area, you have a sort of an arable mountainous area, and then you have a vast sort of desert. And it's cut by a great many rivers that make it quite difficult for large armies to maneuver around. But it was a, a, nevertheless a, in quotes, historic, historic uh, and very strategic march land. People had to use it to get to where you wanted to go. 
uh, if you were sort of campaigning. So whoever controlled Deccan had a great sort of position in India, and the Marathas basically controlled it. And they'd been warring with various states over who controlled portions of it for many years. Um, now, Pune is, is very much in the Deccan. It's in the Ghat region of the Deccan. The, Ghats, the Western Ghats is a mountain range that runs down and has been described as like one of the spines of India. And it's therefore Pune as the capital of the Peshwa was the target of the initial British uh, campaign to restore Bajirao to the leadership of, to the, leadership of the Maratha. Confederacy. Uh, so the Deccan campaign began quite small. Arthur General Wellesley was given the task and a sort of a flying column to rush over, capture Pune, Pune, sorry, and um, you know allow and, and wait for Bajirao to come back, and then we'll sign treaties and everybody will get along. But as I said before, nobody realized that first of all, the Peshwa was a puppet. And second of all, that he did not command the absolute loyalty of the other Marathas. They thought they were basically going to be fighting this guy Holkar, because he was obviously the original rebel to the Peshwa. But as it turned out, once they had captured Pune, once Wellesley had captured Pune and everything seemed to be going well, um, they realized, oh, oh, the, the other Maratha Rajas aren't aren't joyously coming over here and saying yay let's all sign treaties they're actually saying they actually seem to be massing troops and sitting sit, just sort of sitting back and and being quite obstinate about not uh, abiding by the treaty that Bajirao signed with us so then the war changes in character it now becomes a full-scale war against the faction of Shinde and his ally, the, uh, one of the other Maratha uh, ruling uh, confederates, a guy called Ragoji Bonsta, who is related to the, the first Shivaji Bonsta. And so this is a full-scale war now, because they won't sign the Treaty of Bessane, as it was called. Um, and that is where the, that is the Deccan campaign. The British now have to advance into the, the Deccan proper, which is sort of the arid region cut by rivers, and try and defeat and try and defeat these two allies here. It's not the only theater of the war, but that is the that is the Deccan camp. That's the objective. That's the objective and the surrounding importance of the Deccan. And to know that they have to control such a large area of land and large area of India must have been quite daunting for them to also to be walking through the middle of this land that is controlled by the Marathas and to not know what they're walking into must be. We, we should also, exactly, I mean, we should also point out that there has been a civil war going on and from at least 1770, there's been endless cycles of wars in this part of India. And right now the place is in famine and almost... And, and it's almost like devoid of people, um, except refugees. It's an awful period of history for the ordinary people of India. They called it the Gurdikavakt, which is the time of troubles. And obviously, William Dalrymple says that 
this basic early British period is called the Anarchy by Mughal historians. Um, and this is just not helping anything for the people. And you have to march an army through this now. Where are you going to get the food from? Hence, Wellesley's obsession with bullocks and grain. <laughs> and, and, and it shows this need for this land, this need for control, and this need for food. Because the British meet the Marathas at the Battle of Asai. If I'm saying that correctly, so you know, I've what... never actually heard it said properly myself. Weirdly enough, you don't actually <laughs> hear it said very often. But I, I say it asai. Yeah. Asai. So, what happens at this battle? Because it's an important battle in this first part of uh, the wider conflict. Hmm. Well, chances are, if you've ever heard of the Second Maratha War, then you all have heard of this. Or then you probably know about the Battle of Asai. It's in the Bernard Connell books, and chances are, if you've read about the Duke of Wellington, then that's you'll you'll have heard of this battle. This is the this is his this is the battle for the Duke as he became the Duke of Wellington, India. Um, it is also the most famous battle, therefore, of the Deccan campaign. Probably because you know Wellington was involved in it. Really, if we if we're honest. Um, and it came about because he wanted to, do, to defeat the Maratha forces under Shinde and Bonsley. Uh, and up to a point uh, of the battle, up to, up to the point of the battle, Wellesley had been marching backwards and forwards across the Deccan um, at punishing speeds, trying to keep the Marathas from attacking the, the company ally of Hyderabad, which is an important old Mughal power in central India, central southern India. And by September of 1803, he was so desperate, having so, so far not been able to get a decisive battle out of, out of the campaign. Um, he, was, he was willing, he was writing his dispatches that he was basically willing to take any opportunity to get to grips with them and land a blow that could sort of derive some political capital from. Um, now, this is the this is the atmosphere around the battle. The Marathas are sort of doing a merry dance, and whilst he's trying to chase them around. Now we get to the battle. So typically, armies begin marching in India in the early hours while it's still dark and halted sometime around noon. Um, Wellesley was marching divided in this, and uh, at this point, in his second command, Colonel Stevenson was about a day's march to his flank. Um, so at the end of a hard day's march like this, you get uh, an interesting occurrence where Wellesley finds that, he, Wellesley is given in, in, um, information that the, 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 the Maratha army is uh, actually just a few hours march away, but it's, ready, it, it's, 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 it's about to break camp and leave. So he's faced with a, a choice. The principal thing is to sort of so just so stay put, wait for his, the other half of the army to come up and continue chasing the Marathas. However, there is the riskier option that he just plows ahead with his half of the army and tries to catch the Marathas and at least fix them in position or something like that so that then Stevenson can come up and they can win a battle the next day or something. 
and he chooses the audacious risky one he's this he's that desperate to get a battle to win a battle against the Marathas. And so he forced marches ahead through the searing midday heat and comes upon an immense Maratha camp, which is slightly closer than was anticipated and actually looking quite comfortable, um, in sitting on a tongue of land, which was called the Doab in India, uh, nestled between the Kaitna and Jwar rivers. Now upon news that the British were advancing, the Maratha rulers had delegated the coming battle to the senior officer of their regular corps, a, a Hanoverian called Pullman, and had, um, had nipped off somewhere, for some, whatever reason. They didn't seem to be massively keen on fighting, but didn't want to retreat either for some reason, I'm not quite sure. But they seemed happy enough to let the, the battle happen. Pullman uh, decided to guard the line of the, the river uh, with an immense amount of cannons and his and the regular uh, brigades of Maratha infantry, not to mention the hordes of auxiliaries and cavalry and irregulars that were all also attending. So now Wellesley had another choice. He had found the Marathas. Uh, should he attack them, basically? Should he attack them? Should he hold his ground? Um, if he held his ground, there's every chance the Marathas might attack him. And there's a rule in Indian warfare that no matter how badly you are outnumbered, you must always attack. I don't know. I didn't make the rules. That's just how it works. Now, Wesley, understanding this, decides that he will attack. Now, quite apart from making the right call in terms of the general principles of Indian warfare to always attack, uh, he's he is basing this on the idea that the Marathas are not professional or capable enough to um, avoid a flanking maneuver. His plan is basically to drop down the river, find a ford, get round their flank and roll it up. And he thinks they won't be able to respond fast enough to that. This is, this is completely wrong. And it gets him into a great deal of trouble because he finds his ford he piles his, uh, his little army across this ford, traps it, in, therefore trapping it in between two rivers. And to his dismay, he finds that the Marathas have, of course, being people with eyes, seen him do this and just turned around. So now he is facing the front line of an untouched Maratha army with about 100 guns in front of it. Now, the numbers, the numbers bandied around for the Battle of Versailles are, are quite, quite insane, really. Um, the British had between five and 7,000 men and around 17 guns. And the Marathas had somewhere between 20 and 40,000 men. The majority of that is going to be people the British don't really care about. They're like irregulars and uh, sort of bandits and things like that, and people without discipline. They don't care about them. They can, they can beat them any day of the week. The problem is that between six and 12,000 of them are regular sepoy battalions trained by European officers. And they are what Andy Copestake in his book calls the Army of Hindustan. It is the most professional, the most feared army in India. It has never been defeated. 
it is just as good as the company's C-point, or used to be. Why is this? Because, unfortunately, those officers that trained them and those officers who built their reputations with them have been all bribed away by the crafty British Governor General Lord Wellesley. And so what is actually, and so it's a shadow of its former self. And although Wellesley probably didn't base his tactics on this appreciation, the odds are not as bad as they seem so long as Wellesley now begins to continue making the right calls and continues to act defensively and actually has no choice but to act defense, uh, offensively because he's trapped, he's trapped between two rivers. There's no retreat. If he retreats, the Murata cavalry are going to tear him to pieces. So he attacks. He also attacks because the Murata, those hundred guns of the Murata artillery are firing at him and have knocked out all of his, all of his artillery bullocks and he can't bring the guns up. It's an awful, awful situation and awful for the poor sepoys and privates of the British infantry because they now have to advance through this hailstorm of shot to get to the Murata line. And it is described as one of the most harry, harrowing experiences anybody had ever gone through in India to actually walk through this to get into action. But despite having basically, you know, sweet talk to himself into a hole, Wellesley fights his way out of it based on the slightly more modern tactics of his battalions, the iron discipline of the British battalions who were in the lead, and indeed the sepoys who followed in echelon behind them. And it's a terrible sort of pounding match. It goes to and fro. He almost gets his flank turned when the Maratha cavalry overrun like two battalions on his right flank, but his cavalry are there watching and they charge. But it's, it, he loses, a th he, he, and he drives, he drives the Marathas from the field. Um, everybody's stunned. Uh, that the Marathas put up this fight, even without the majority of their officers. Um, and he's lost, and Wellesley loses a third of his, his force and cannot pursue the Maratha army until Colonel Stevenson arrives later that night. He goes on the day after. That's the Battle of Versailles. It's, people said that there hadn't been a battle seen in, like it in India. And it is indeed a very impressive feat of improvisation, to be honest. But it's there's a lot of misconceptions about it. A lot of people think that it's, you know, Wellington at his finest, planning out everything to the last detail. No, he's making it up as he goes along. He has he could be he could be he could lose in the next instant. Uh, but he did manage to make the right calls, and did manage to get out of it. And um, the name Asai, as I say in the book, is is on the funeral carriage in Stratfield Say. And obviously, it's had it had a big impact on him as a person as well. And to to think back and think that it's all done on the hoof kind of shows, you know, how well he is able to walk himself out of bad situations to put himself into, but also how some of the best pieces of history have not been planned out to their entirety mm -hmm. so this is part of that wider Deccan campaign how does this campaign 
end? Does it end with the British being in the ascendancy? Uh, yes, it does. And by dint of Wellesley not getting his army wiped out and himself captured by the Marathas at Versailles, which really could have happened, I think, if if they still had their officer corps with them and they had a, a general there who was in full control. Um, I don't think we would have heard of a Duke of Wellington, to be honest. But yeah, because he won the Battle of Versailles and he, that he won it against such great odds, that really had a, a powerful effect on Maratha morale. And uh, he follows up this, this victory by uh, more hard marching, it has to be said, but by eventually tracking down and defeating the army of Ragoji Bonsle um, at Argam in, I believe it's November, and then storming the fortress of Gabulkur, uh, which is uh, a major, uh, a major fortification of that of that Raja. Um, and once that falls, and once both armies have been defeated by the British, and so the British have sort of um, uh, demonstrated their their superiority here. Um, nobody's in the mood to fight on. Shinde uh, asks for terms, and obviously Ragoji Bonsle uh, is gonna is like on the verge of having his his territory uh, basically taken away from him piece by piece. He also comes to terms. But that is essentially the, the end of the Deccan campaign when Wellesley takes Gawalgur because he has successfully he has successfully removed the two major uh, Maratha armies from, from the contest. And now it's basically down to the treaty treaty work with the with the Governor General. And that's an incredibly powerful move that he's taken away two of those main armies and it dramatically strengthens Britain's position in India. Mm-hmm. Now, from the success of the Deccan campaign, we flow into the Hindustan campaign. Now, obviously, the army of Hindustan, as you just called it, is removed. So... Well, uh, just just to... The, the army of Hindustan is very complicated. It is massive. So part of it, yes, has been removed. A, a good sizable chunk three brigades or more has been removed but there are there are more so we'll but and we will meet them in a minute yeah. <laughs> then on that <laughs> point on that point then josh what is the aim of this brand new campaign this brand new shiny campaign the hindustan mm. campaign well the the hindustan campaign is 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 probably the more politically important campaign then nowadays everybody cares only about the Deccan campaign because Wellesley was there but at the time Lord Wellesley was most interested in Hindustan and that is because if you remember Delhi is in Hindustan and the emperor is in Hindustan if you're going to break the Maratha power then take the emperor away from them and everybody and Wellesley has known for quite a while that the key to um, establishing a firm British hold over the majority of India um, to cement his so-called forward policy, his his subsidiary system. Um, he he needs he needs the authority that can be given or conveyed through the guardianship of the emperor in Delhi. Um, so 
that is basically the aim of this campaign. It's not really to defeat the Marathas, they're just the people they're fighting. Um, the old Mughal capital, the seat of power, um, that, is, that is the goal of the Hindustan campaign. Um, and, you know, the, it makes a kind of sense because if you're Lord Wellesley, you weren't expecting this massive war with the Marathas, you were just hoping to restore the Peshwa and go home and have lunch. But since you have this war and you're going to be expending masses of money and lives and probably going to be give, given hell in parliament for it, you'd better come out of it with something, with some good compensation. So he needs the Hindustan campaign to work, and that means taking Delhi. And, and it's completely understandable that you need to, to do what you can to make the best of a bad situation and of a situation you didn't particularly envision happening. Now, within this new campaign mm -hmm. emerges General Gerard Lake, and I found him an absolutely fascinating character across the course of your book now who who is this this general and why like why like wellesley why is he important to this second maratha war well <clears throat> lake is is um i mean simply put lake is the commander-in-chief in india you have the governor general who is sort of like the political head the the most important man in india the superior person appointed by the board of governors and directors in, in, in conjunction with with uh, the, the the british cabinet but uh and then you have the commander-in-chief who is the senior military man in india and he's he's sent out by the british government now the uh, lake uh was a highly experienced soldier he was 55 years old when he was when he was in india um, he was a former guardsman. Um, he'd fought in the Seven Years' War. He was a devoted father. He, he, he rode excellently, gambled badly, dressed neatly, and believed wholeheartedly in, in firm offensive action wherever it was called for. And uh, he, was, he, was, he was rather beloved for this reason by the the Sawars or troopers of the Bengal native cavalry who, who called him Lik Sahib Bahadur, uh, and Bahadur being a uh, honorific, which sort of means noble warrior or honourable, um, and it was a it was a nickname that was often given to well respected officers like the very famous Colonel James Skinner was known as um, was I believe known as. Bahadur at some points, as well as Sikandar Saab, because as well there was a there was a there was a habit in India of nicknaming people Alexander, uh, as in Alexander the Great, um, as a shorthand for someone who was a, who was a brave and successful fighter. Um, because uh, you know, fun fact: if anybody doesn't know, Alexander the Great rocked up into India in his his last major campaign, and well, it didn't go so well. Anyway. <clears throat> different different podcast anyway different the, um, book. <laughs> yeah different book which i would actually love to write but the um this is this is this is this is lord lake um lick Saab. and he he is the man who is going to try and take delhi uh he's also a very capable um courtier 
you know, he is, he's very elegant. He always dresses very well. He makes sure he's, he's, he always appears to his men with his powdered wig and things like that. And for that reason, he gets on quite well with, with the prickly and just downright difficult um, Lord Wellesley, uh, who only really worked well so if he was friends with the individual and Lake managed to, to sweet talk him into letting him conduct this campaign the way it, he felt it should be conducted as a soldier. And it's, it's fascinating that friendships work on this kind of level, but also that, you know, he's, he's being given these nicknames by the native population that shows that not only is he revered by the British, but he's revered by Indian soldiers as well. Now, in this, I mean, I think I think Irish Catholics probably had some different names for him, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly not one, not one for this book. Maybe another podcast. But mm-hmm. within this Hindustan campaign, we start to see the influence of an old English enemy in India. We start to see French influence in India. So how how is this French influence? see in india and who's kind of leading this this french power within india right well the the french power in india is a funny thing in the second Maratha war because it doesn't exist technically um it's you have to understand the kind of weird mind of lord wellesley to understand his constant obsession with driving the french from india because technically french power in india had been broken during the seven years war and the early sort of like the 1770s 1780s when they lost pondicherry um all that remained of french power in india practically were the mercenaries who came in and trained uh, the armies of many of the what the British called in quotes country powers, so the independent Indian states, and um, the current commander in chief and subadar in Hindustan was indeed a former French cloth salesman named Perron. Um, now, the army of Hindustan, which we've referred to before, uh, was a very large entity. And in India, large armies were paid for and supplied through the territories they were sort of garrisoned in. Therefore, the governor of Hindustan used the revenue from the land to pay the troops. And so Perron was actually ridiculously wealthy because he was basically he was governor of Hindustan and commander-in-chief of the army that is why Lord Wellesley now and again calls Hindustan uh, I believe like the French territory or something like that Um, he actually believes that this is being held for France or something like that his brief uh, one of his briefs going out to India as governor general was to remove French influence, the last vestiges of French influence in India. But that meant basically plucking out all of the French mercenaries who had become generals in the different in the different Indian states. They did it in in Hyderabad, and now the Marathas were the next were the next go. Uh, 
And basically, if you had, if you were, if you were a Maharaja or an, a, a Nawab or you know a, a Peshwa, and you had French officers in your army, the British were going to come for you at this point because they just felt it was such a threat to India to have Frenchmen messing around with large amounts of sepoys. So that's the French. That's the French influence that we're referring to here. It's got really nothing to do with Napoleon. There was a lot of rumors going around about various French generals who had been famous in India who had gone back when they're buddies with Napoleon and were planning to take India. But that's that's kind of the core of it. Um, so that yeah, that's that's the French power in India at the second. It's very disconnected from France. It's very much to do with India and personalities. Um, but nevertheless, yes, there are a lot of Frenchmen in the army of Hindustan. Perron is one of them. He's the man in charge. Um, he's one of many nationalities of Europeans working in the in the armed forces of India during what you might call the military revolution that occurred in India around the 17, around the second half of the 18th century. There are British, Swiss, Italians, Hanoverians, various Germans messing around as well. Um, uh, but it just so happened, yeah, that Shinde's uh, commander-in-chief is a Frenchman, um, a kind of a middling commander, but an interesting guy nonetheless. Um, and this was a red flag to a bull to, a bull to the xenophobic, uh, you know, Lord Wellesley. Um, a major part of Blake's objective was to remove him, and basically he did. Uh, some people say that Perron was basically bribed from the start. He was in Lake's pocket um, and had no intention of actually fighting the British. And he was basically, well, I've become a millionaire um, while I've been in India. I'll just cash up and um, go back to Europe. I don't care about these people. Um, and indeed, he was very lackluster at the beginning of the campaign. Um, he, he lost the city of uh, Aligarh. Uh, early in the campaign, Lake just uh, drove his troops from it, captured it. He surrounded it, I think, a month later or something like that. And so Lake then drives into Hindustan in, in August with so-called, <laughs> so-called he called it the Grand Army of the Doab and Yamuna or Jamna. Uh, and um, he marched north from Kanpur, which is uh, which was called Kanpur. Uh, and he took Aligarh, and there was a raft of defections then from then on of uh, European officers in Maratha service. The, the greatest blow to the Maratha cause was Lord Wellesley issuing a, a proclamation um, before the fighting started saying that any European found in arms against the company will basically be treated as a traitor. But if you leave now, then you know we'll give you a job uh, we'll give you some money um so that that really smoothed the wheels of of the campaign from the beginning and because it caused factionalism of who was going to who was going to replace them and it was just total mess um and so with this in mind lake appears before delhi in in short order uh they engaged the Maratha army defending Delhi uh, on the 11th of September, and the, the British drove the drove the Marathas into the Jamna uh, and, and won the battle and became the guardians of the emperor. The emperor was delighted to be actually because 
he 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 wasn't happy with the Marathis, and he'd been in he'd been in correspondence with uh, with the governor general, you know, saying "come and rescue me" kind of thing, uh, because the well, you know, I guess he just wanted to switch switch overlords or something like that. I'm not really sure. Or he thought he would get a better deal with the British. Anyway, that uh, they captured Delhi successfully, uh, and they. They got rid of the last French officers. The, the, the commander-in-chief of that army was a chap called Louis Bouquin, uh, um, who was, again, I mean, one, one historian calls him, just outright calls him a poltroon. Um, uh, and he didn't do very well at all. Uh, although in his report, I believe, he said that you know he did his best. Maybe he did, I don't know. Um, then Lake basically goes and mops up the rest of the of the army of Hindustan, um, and he meets them under the command of uh, Shinde's new subadar in Hindustan, uh, Ambaji Engvir, at the Battle of Laswari, and uh, he defeats that army. The Battle of Laswari is a very similar battle to Asai in that a lot of the same motivation is there from the British side. They really want a battle. They really need to finish this campaign before the weather turns bad. Um, and they kind of fall into a trap and they get pounded by artillery and they just advance through the storm of fire. And the Marathas have to be driven from the field by repeated cavalry charges and bayonets because they just won't run. Casualties are horrendous, but again, the British do manage because they're slightly more modern in terms of how they've been trained and the, the tactical doctrines winning the field. And Lake, um, and Lake decides that is sort of Lake, and then Lake turns on, on our boy Holkar, who I mentioned earlier, and he chases him off into the fringes of Rajasthan and feels that the campaign is over. And he goes and puts his troops into cantonments, and that's technically, and he thinks it's the end. Well, we've we've seen that Wesley's anti-French doctrine, the Wesley doctrine, as I'm probably saying, yeah. <laughs> the Wesley doctrine in India, and the combination of late success getting to Delhi, kind of shows that the British position is is strong in India, and they're in a fantastic position. Yes, they're able to control the country through possession of the emperor. Now you've you've mentioned Prince Holkar. Mm-hmm. How how much of a threat was was he? You mentioned in your book at this point you believe it's the end of the Second Maratha War, and suddenly Holkar comes in with a bit of power, a bit of gusto about him. So how much of a threat is is this Prince Holkar? Well, Holkar is one of my favorite characters from this war, actually. Uh, he's, 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 he's a hard-drinking, hard-riding, swashbuckling, womanizing, one-eyed, illegitimate son of a Maharaja. And he, as I said before, he was, he was the illegitimate son, I believe, of uh, Tukaji Holkar. And he was sort of the regent for his nephew, Kandirao who was captured during the, during the Maratha Civil War. His capture and the slaughter of a great many of the Holkar family was why 
the Maratha civil war happened and why Bajra eventually had to flee. Holkar, in a way, is the uh, underpins this entire thing. He's basically the reason why they're in this mess now, in a way, because he decided to, because because he'd been put, put he he'd been forced into a corner and he had to come out fighting. And his story is amazing, to be honest. It's full of sort of drama and ups and downs. He gets defeated. He has to go into exile. He comes back with this sort of ragtag army of of bandits and pindaris and patan freebooters and things like that. And this this messy bunch of guys come together and they defeat Bajirao and he goes and flees to the British. And then the when the Maratha War starts, he backs off. He he leaves Pune. He abandons the puppet Peshwa, as they called it, uh, as they called him, that he had placed on the throne when Bajirao ran away. And he just he just sort of he 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 sits on the sidelines. He doesn't join the Confederates because they're his enemies. And he doesn't join the British because you know he doesn't trust them either. Um he just waits to see how things pan out. Now, unfortunately. While that makes um, uh, quite a lot of political sense, given his background, and he really shouldn't trust Shinde at all. Um, it is really bad for the Marathas because this, that means they're fractured. He is an excellent commander and a great and a very large chunk of therefore the Maratha Confederacy does not fight in unison with the rest of them um, until this point. And at this point, He's sort of been driven into the uh, uh, um, a part of India called Malwa, uh, where he's just sort of been extracting tribute from various princes. And like I say, Lake, Lake goes and says, war's over, Holkar's not a problem. He'll probably, we'll deal with him next year if he, if he, if he chooses to fight at all. Um, well, like you say, <laughs> Holkar Holkar re reappears um, and he does so with considerable flair he was a truly gifted leader and a redoubtable soldier and really the guy you needed to be, have a more central role and to be honest when dealing with the East India Company but yeah he reappears and it's not necessarily that he has a great deal of power that the British feel they need to be afraid of. They don't really know what his game is at this point. But for some reason, but but he feels that now is the time to enter the war, probably because probably because certain, yeah, because certain uh, certain things happened which he saw as opportunities, and. He chose this point to enter the war actively, and he does so quite dramatically. Uh, and uh, he upsets the apple, court, apple cart quite a lot, actually, as far as Lake is concerned. And he he does upset, like you said, he does upset this this apple cart. So, basing on that point of the apple cart, how successful were the British in repelling his threat? Because I know there's been a there's been a slight change in who's leading some of the British troops mm -hmm. and a slight change in the skill level of some of the people leading these troops. Yes. Um, so when, when, when Lake 
heads back to his winter quarters and he, and he and he puts his troops to bed basically for the year he leaves a small well he, he leaves a, a decent sized column of troops uh on the Indistan frontier this is under a officer called colonel monston and monston's job is basically to make sure that holkar doesn't come back you know if, if holkar appears just probably to fight him if you have to just make sure he doesn't come back into Hindustan and cause trouble. He had one job, you know. Um, he failed at that one job. He he got it into his head to actually advance into into Malwa and parts of uh, parts of Rajasthan uh, at a really bad time of year um, when the rains were coming and. Holkar, Holkar pounced on him. He he came at him um, and just disintegrated that that division. Uh, he forced it to he he. Monson was just so indecisive, and this is is really weird because throughout the campaign, Monson actually had been a very brave and capable officer that had led several of the famous um, attacks on several cities. Um, and, and one officer, I think, later said that he was exactly the sort of man you needed at the top of a siege ladder, but in, in charge of a force of true independent force. The guy didn't know what to do. Um, and this is true. He advanced to try and attack Holkar, um, got scared when he thought that a second British force that Wellesley had sent up from the Deccan uh, was retreating. and ran away just as Holkar was coming to fight him so he basically presented his back and kept running from there pretty much and Holkar just took little pieces out of him as he ran uh, until eventually um, after fording several rivers and taking tremendous casualties losing his supplies his guns um, there was a panic uh, Nobody knows what caused it, but everybody was so demoralized by this point that the entire division just lost all discipline, became a mob of fugitives and ran back all the way to Agra. And so to, you could say to begin with, <laughs> you could say to begin with, no, the British didn't do terribly well at all at dealing with Hawker. Um, and because, because what happened now was that Hawker all, all of all of Western Hindustan was basically open to him. He could go wherever he wanted. He could besiege. He had endless choices. He could besiege Agra. He could go up to Delhi and attack Delhi. Lake wasn't in the field anymore. The army was scattered. So Holkar decided to attack Delhi. He sent his regular infantry up there, besieged Delhi, sent his cavalry down into the Doab to harass. Lake, who was frantically getting an army back together and marching to relieve Delhi. And this is where this is where some control is, is re-established. Lake does manage to relieve Delhi, um, despite a very, very punishing march to get there. Um, but it's caused endless trouble, and that apple cart, there's apples everywhere. And it's going to take an awful lot, and it and it took an awful lot of of effort, money, and, and lives to to restore what had been 
what had been won at the end of 1803. And to me, the way the way you write about it, Monson definitely has a degree of incompetence or fear, yeah, it's like indec- fear yeah, of Holcar. It, yeah, he, he does. It's indecisiveness. Uh, he, he's, he's paralyzed by indecision in the face of this relentless attack by Holcar and he, he seems to just feel everything I am going to do is wrong, so I can't do anything. And of course, Holcar capitalized on that. And that and that swings the balance of power. It turns oh. this war on the British side from an offensive war to a defensive war. And we see the British lose a five-year record oh. at Jat against the Jats. Mm-hmm. So what yeah. happens here? Who were the Jats and how did they lose this five-year record? Yes, well, um, so the Jats were one of the warrior peoples of Western, Western India and uh, their capital was at a place called Bharatpur. And this was reputed as a sort of a bulwark of Hindustan. Um, the Jats were famed Hindu warriors that had made a name for themselves um, in the in antiquity and against the Mughals in the 17th century. Uh, their capital was was surrounded with large, uh, massive mud walls and huge ditches. Now, the British had actually made uh, a treaty with the Raja of Bharatpur, whose name is uh, Ranjit Singh, um, when Lake was marching through the, the area after taking Agra in uh, 1803, 1804. And the Raja of Bharatpur, however, on seeing Holkar's early successes, had sent uh, diplomats and messengers to Holkar saying, I'll, I'll, I'll help you drive the British out. Um, so he was one of the, he was a defector to the, to the Maratha side. Unfortunately, at just about the time he was about to commit his forces to the struggle, Lake, as I said, broke the siege of Delhi and destroyed Holkar's regular infantry and artillery, then, uh, then proceeded to chase him with a sort of flying column and cavalry and horse artillery to, um, I think it is to, I need to check, yeah, Farukabad, where he surprised his camp and scattered it and Holkar had to flee. So Holkar does now legitimately seem to be out of the picture, and that leaves Bharatpur and the Jats in a really, really bad situation because now Lake feels personally insulted and betrayed because the deal was made with Lake. And Lake is like of the old school. He's quite a sensitive man. He feels this betrayal very keenly, and he wants to make an example of the Jats. So he sends troops to attack the Jat fortresses. And uh, Ranjit Singh tries to say, okay, no, no, <laughs> my bad. Let's, let's not do this. But Lake, Lake, that's the, yeah, Lake wants to make a, an example of, of the Jats now. And with Holkar battered away for the moment, he marches down. They storm the fortress of Deeg, uh, take it with, with, with considerable losses, and then appear before Bharatpur in, I believe, January of uh, 1805. Now, that is where 
you get this is where we can discuss this this reputation the British have about sieges. Um, as far as I can gather, the British have never failed to take a city or fortress. Um, in the last five years, I'm pretty sure beyond that as well, to be honest, it's probably more than five years. In five years, they have never failed to take a city. They were the greatest fortress breakers uh, since the Mughals. One British officer, James Young of the Bengal Horse Artillery, literally writes that the Jats need to recognize them as siege lords. Um, and, you know, the ability of the British, and indeed it was quite, it was fairly accurate to take whatever, take whatever fortress, you know, they came across, gave them great sort of political power, because, you know, the fortresses are the places you are places of refuge um, for, for any, any country. And if they are rendered obsolete by the skill and engine of the engineers of your enemy, then you have no defense. So the British placed a great deal of store on their ability, you know, and they were quite puffed up about it to take whatever fortress they came at. And sometimes they would just be so um, cavalier about it that they wouldn't even bombard the walls. You know, at the at, at Ahmed Nagar uh, during the Deccan campaign, Wesley just had ladders made and they just poured over the walls. And uh, at um, Aligar, they they just shot the they brought out guns and blew the gate open and then charged in. You, you know, this is unheard of types of ways of storming cities that hadn't been seen in Europe like since the 17th century. Um, so. So they come to Bharatpur with this attitude, um, but they receive a rude shock. And what was this kind of rude, rude shock and awakening for the British? Well, I think it, it comes down to, you know, cutting, cutting a long story short, it comes down to the pretty bad state Lake's army is in by this point. They've been a, they've been like campaigning for the better part of 1803 and now well into 1804, uh, most of 1804, and now it's 1805. Um, uh, they, the, their supplies are pretty bad. They're strung out all the way back to Delhi. It's it's a fairly long march from Delhi to to Bharatpur, and. All the way down back into the Doab to cut to 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 Kanpur, you know the, the supply lines are ridiculously overstretched, and Holkar, who is still messing around, takes massive advantage of this and descends on the supply lines with his cavalry, and you know brings in some of his allies like the famous Patan um, freebooter Amir Khan, um, and they. They make things very difficult for the British, um, who are now trying to break into Bharatpur. At first, though, it does seem like, as usual, the British will just sort of shrug off the problems and take the place because they 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 construct their batteries, they bring up their guns, a couple of eighteen pounders. They don't they don't encircle it. They just come up against the part of the wall they want to attack. 
and they batter a hole in it. Unfortunately, the Jats have this nasty habit of rebuilding the breaches. Um, so by the time the British attack, there are new fortifications inside the rubble. Um, the British attack Bharatpur by breaches and by escalade four times. And each time they are repulsed with tremendous losses. This goes on through the winter and everybody is just stunned. And to be honest, it get after the fourth assault fails, they realize that as the army stands at the moment, it will take maybe the rest of the year to take this place. And we don't have that kind of time because like I say, Holkar and Amir Khan are, ram are running around. Everybody in, across India has heard that the Jats have held Bharatpur and Shinde is gathering his army again and all the rest of the Marathas are making noises like, okay, well, maybe we didn't need to like surrender too quickly after all. Maybe we can, maybe we can get these guys. And so Lake has to sign a treaty with the Jats saying, pay me an indemnity and I'll go away. And that's, and that's a fairly good deal for, oh, for very Lake good from deal. that point. <laughs> so the issue of the Jats kind of goes away and, and Lake fades away from this siege to get away from this <laughs> he, he failure. He gets away from that place as yeah. fast as he possibly can. I don't want to hear the name Barrettburg again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens to uh, to Holkar? What happens to Holkar after this, this oh. campaign to defeat the British? Well, I mean, the... Holkar has been basically played by bad luck and bad timing through his entire this entire war, basically. And there's no one to blame but himself, really, for that, because he, he could have thrown in with the other Marathas and sort of faced everybody as one united front, but he didn't. They played factionalism and it came back to bite them. This is the only real thing. This is one of the main things that, you know, aided the British was the disunity of, of the enemy. Um, Holkar did try. Uh, and Shinde and and you know Ragoji Bonsla, even the even the even the Bonsla Chhatrapati, um, the Raja of Sitara, uh, even got involved. They all tried to form a coalition uh, to to continue the war with the British, but they couldn't get along. They couldn't work out a treaty. The British, you know, it was taking too long. The British were going to come at them, and they hadn't worked anything out. So it all. It all sort of fell apart and Shinde um, submitted to the British again and, and sent his army home. Holkar therefore had to go on the run. He, he, he fled north and, Le and Lake pursued him. Uh, he took a flying detachment and pursued Holkar across Rajasthan and into Punjab, where he had gone to try, where Holkar had gone to try and form another alliance with the Sikhs. Specifically, the Sikh Maharaja of Lahore, Ranjit Singh, um, very similar name to the ruler of Bharatpur, sorry about that. Um, but this guy has the wonderful nickname Shara of Punjab, which is the Lion of Punjab. And he is the great 
he's the great man of Sikh history. He's, he's, he's the guy who unites the Sikh confederation um, and forms the Sikh empire that the British encounter uh, in 1843 and uh, 1845. Uh, and, you know, Ranjit Singh was, was everything Holkar was, including only having one eye. Uh, but he was also a, a much more gifted politician than Holkar was. And while he, he would, I doubt, have ever ruled out of challenging the British if the circumstances were right, he could see that the circumstances were not right to, to challenge the East India Company right now. Um, Holkar came up to him and he was, say, he was you know, trying to appeal to him as, as a sort of a, as a Hindu brother and you know we can go and fight the Firangis and drive them out of India and all that sort of thing and Ranjit Singh was just you know he's like I know what's been going on in the Maratha Confederacy you've lost and all that's going to happen if I get involved now is that I'm all of Punjab is going to be invaded and it's going to end badly so sorry not today and with that when, when Ranjit Singh says, now is not the time to fight the British, nice job, but not now, um, Holkar, Holkar surrenders. And, uh, and that, that properly is the end of the, of the Second Maratha War, which kind of has two phases. You have the, the war against Shinde and the, the war against Holkar, and when Holkar surrenders, the you know the the politicians can get to work and it's it's a fascinating timeline a fascinating set of events that led to this war and as you just alluded to it it definitely sounds like the british won but what also mm. happened to anglo indian relations in the aftermath of this british victory well <clears throat> so Politically speaking, nobody was very happy with Lord Wellesley. Um, his whole forward policy of aggressively trying to gain a monopoly over most of India, which stemmed from some queer um, kind of attempt to stop all the wars happening in India, while at the same time ignoring the fact that a great deal of the wars in India were caused by the British, um, this, this, this idea of basically conquering India so as to make it peaceful um, was very unpopular in Britain and it was also eye-wateringly expensive and then they start hearing that what, what do you mean Lord Lake has been defeated by a bunch of people we've never heard of before? What, what do you mean this, these casualty lists here? What, what is happening now? Have, Wellesley's, basically, Wellesley's lost the plot. Um, he's let this get out of hand. And also people were noticing that the subsidiary system was not annexation. It was the creation of multiple dependencies um, all of whom would now depend on the British to do practically everything for them. And most people in Parliament were just saying, um, isn't that just going to create a, a massive amount of opportunity for 
for like dodgy dealing and isn't it going to bankrupt us and isn't it going to ruin all the governments that are touched by it um so wellesley basically is removed on on the score of the second maratha war even though it was you know strategically and tactically successful and he did manage to capture delhi um and remove the last great obstacle to british domination over india politically speaking he'd crossed several lines and everybody wanted him to come back and basically answer for what what he'd been doing there so wellesley's out of the picture um lord wellesley is general wellesley also leaves very soon after um he goes back and obviously becomes the duke of wellington and, and famously says that he he learned basically everything he ever knew about soldiering after he left india um was Lord Wellesley is replaced by the Marquis of Cornwallis, who is the same Cornwallis from the American Revolution, by the way. Um, but Cornwallis died in India um, before he could really settle the Maratha, the quest, question of the Marathas, what to do with the Marathas, because no proper sort of treaty had been, new treaty had been, and had been signed yet. And nobody really quite knew what to do with them or whether to punish them or to take their cities away or to remove them from power, like remove the main players from power. Nobody knew what to do. So Cornwallis died before he could sort of fix all of the problems that Lord Wellesley had created, because that was why he was sent out there. Um, and his, his, his temporary successor, George Barlow, um, finalized the treaties. And they were actually quite generous to the Marathas. Um, they got to keep their capitals, they got to keep their titles, they were given back a great deal of the land that was taken from them, except for Delhi and the Doab region, which became known as the ceded and conquered territories. Um, and yeah, that that is, that is and, and Anglo-Maratha relations kind of cooled off. The British stepped back from them and unfortunately allowed them to then go and persecute the Rajput states who had depended on the British for protection. Um, but now because the British were trying to retract this expansionist policy and do non-interventions, um, as had been the case before um, Lord Wellesley had come to power, uh, this now left a great deal of states in Western, Northwestern India very vulnerable to to uh to the marathas uh and so it was not a pleasant situation it, nothing massively good came out of the second maratha war uh one way or another really and yeah the, i think that's the best way to say it nothing good comes out of it but nonetheless i know something that good came out of it and it is this book <laughs> Josh, I, I'm a big fan of it and I'm a big fan of, of what you have told us today or taught us today. So as you know, Josh, I like to ask one fun question to all our guests. Now, as you are the king of niche and you have researched <laughs> several amazing characters from history across the course of your, your writing and research career, which three characters would you like to sit down and have dinner with? I think that we'll stay in India for, for this. Um, 
three is a small number. Uh, <laughs> I have to say there's quite a lot to choose from. Um, I would, I think that, uh, let's, let's, let's invite, who should we invite? Let's invite, let's invite Ranjit Singh, you know, the, the Maharaja of Lahore. Let's invite as well, let's invite him and Gandhi and we're going, we're going out of period now and then maybe and then maybe we'll return to the period and also have a chat with uh with Mahadaji Shinde and they're three fantastic choices absolutely amazing choices i'm I not love... sure what gandhi will do with these two guys but it'll be <laughs> interesting <laughs> give me time to talk to him while the other two argue yeah <laughs> well i love i love that dinner party there so josh if our if our listeners want to learn more about the period what kind of books and places would you like to send them to to learn more well if you want to learn about the the east india company uh, then the most accessible general books that cover the entire period from its sort of arrival in Indians uh, from like 1603 to 1858, then you can't do any better than uh, John Kay's The Honourable Company and then follow that up with William Dalrymple's The Anarchy. Uh, you can then also delve into various... Um, uh, there, there are a couple of good books about the mercenaries that served in the in the Maratha in the Maratha forces, and indeed the forces of of many of the other Indian states. Um, uh, one of the oldest ones is is Military Adventures in Hindustan, um, which is which was written in the nineteenth century, but it's it's very good and it's it's quite it's got a good sort of spread of. Of different, uh, it's got a good spread of of, of subjects and characters that covers. Then, um, then I would highly, if you want to sort of delve into, you know, military operations and things, then 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 have a look at the <laughs> have a look at the uh, the the journals and memoirs that I used to write this book because. You know, people like James Young, uh, Pester, um, and um, and 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 Wellesley's officer of engineers. I, uh, I for some reason I, I can't get his name into my head at the second, but yeah, all of these guys. Also, Wellington's India dispatches. Uh, these are amazing. Also, I mean, there are some. There's also. Uh, a great, a great, a great book about the Indian Army of this period is was, is um, the one written, possibly by an actual sepoy, uh, which is the memoirs of Sita Ram, uh, and it's called From Sepoy to Subedar. Um And people can, if people want to read it, then they can get into the debate about who Sita Ram actually was. As they do that, but I do recommend it. It's a very interesting book, and then also the the memoirs of the Pathan soldier of fortune Amir Khan, uh, and also 
uh, in a similar vein, the memoirs of of James Skinner um, by Bally Fraser. Uh, will give you excellent an excellent idea of what it's like to go to war in India. Um, uh, there is a, quite a long list. I mean, I should I really should add again William Dalrymple's White Mughals, uh, which is just a tremendous story. And I think if you just like to read about history, you should read that. Um, and then my friends, my friends, I, I mentioned at the beginning, Mani Mughal Sharma has written a book about the a very timely book which reflects on our on our own time as well about the Emperor Akbar and and sort of enlightened enlightened and uh, the idea of an enlightened leader um, and uh, if you want to learn about Ranjit Singh and how his Sikh empire came into contact with the British empire in the last great war between the British and an Indian power in the 1840s then uh, and my good friend Amarpal Singh Sidhu is the man to look out. He has written the book, books about the first and second Anglo-Sikh war. And then as well, if you want to look into Sikh history itself, look at Kashi House, um, which, is, uh, uh, which is part run by a good friend of mine named Palmjit Singh. And they do tremendously tremendously good books. They're beautiful books. They're lovely books to own. And they cover like the Sikh, Sikh warrior ethos, history, art, culture, and things like that. Um, you will have to stop me, okay, because I will go on. <laughs> and that's like that you've given a, a wealth of resources for our listeners, a mix of primary and secondary sources. What more could any historian want as a list of recommended texts? Now, we're here for you, Josh, as well. So if our listeners and watchers want to get a copy of your book, where can they find it? You can get it, uh, you can get it from Helion's website, the publisher's website, which I believe means I get a slightly bigger cut of whatever royalties is derived from the price of the book. Uh, you can also get it from Amazon. Uh, and even if you get it from Helion, I would appreciate a, a review on Amazon, as we all do, um, because apparently that's where the reviews live. Or if you have a blog, please do. I, I would love to to read what you think of it. Uh, myself, you can find me at uh, at Land of History, like you said at the beginning on Twitter. Um, feel free to stop by and ask a question. I'll I'll try. I'll do my best to I'll do my best to interact with you and say hi. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Josh. You've been fantastic guest once again and you've told us or taught us told us taught us <laughs> such fantastic history about an area of history which is not often looked at so thank you very much josh it's been my pleasure thank you for having me and thank you very much guys for listening if you guys enjoyed listening to myself and josh please make sure that you leave a like a review and possibly even share to the people who you think would enjoy this episode so thank you very much guys and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of the History with Jackson podcast.